You know, as believers, the task that we have been given in this life is not an easy one. We are constantly feeling the tension between the mindset of the world and the mindset of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In fact, as long as we walk on this earth, we will struggle with the temptations of the flesh, the temptation to sin, and the mind of Christ. In fact, Scripture teaches us that as believers, we have the mind of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16. See, when God saves us, By His grace, through faith in Christ, He begins a transformative work in us as His people, and He dwells in us by His Spirit, but we will remain a work in progress until Christ returns. Until then, we still struggle with sin. We wrestle with what it means to live in this world, and at the same time, to declare our allegiance to Christ, to follow after Christ. We feel the tension between succumbing to the values of the present world and submitting to the values of the king who reigns in heaven. The result is we often mix the two, compromising the truth or catering to the culture. And I think this is one of the reasons that God gives us the church. This is one of the reasons that God gives us one another, that we learn from each other, we Hold each other accountable. We grow in faith together. In fact, let me invite you as we prepare to look at God's word in Genesis to hear from Ephesians chapter 4. Provides a picture of God's design for the church. God's design for his people. I'm going to read several verses out of Ephesians 4. If you want to turn there, then you're certainly welcome to. Otherwise, let me encourage you to listen well. But Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 11. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. See, God doesn't call us as his people to live out a comfortable cultural Christianity that easily meshes and neatly fits with everyone and everything around us. The God that we serve, the God of the Bible, calls us to engage the culture, to speak the truth without succumbing to the values of the present world. So as we approach a Another election cycle, we believers would do well to remember that we are called to engage the world with the truth, God's truth, but we're called to do so with a love that mirrors the love of God. We're called to speak the truth in love. This is not an easy task. It almost goes without saying that it's not fully natural to us for we wrestle with the sin nature it's 
difficult to stand upon the truth, to stand fully upon God's word when others are not. It's also difficult often to operate out of love, to live in light of God's love, to speak with a love that honors God. And thankfully, in God's good design, he has given us each other. He has given us the church to walk through this world together. And in his good design, he has given us spiritual leaders to help guide us along the way. But as we open God's word this morning, I think we will see that when spiritual leadership is lacking, when spiritual leadership is deficient, then sin has opportunity to flourish. Sin flourishes where spiritual leadership is deficient. Let me invite you to open up the Bible with me once again to Genesis chapter 34, where I think we see this principle uh, portrayed in God's word. And as you're turning to Genesis chapter 34, I want to let you know that uh, in light of this passage and preparing to preach this passage, there have been two verses that have been on my mind this week. The first is... Perhaps a well-known verse of Scripture, 2 Timothy 3.16, that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and for training in righteousness. The second verse is Acts chapter 20, verse 27, where Paul writes to the Ephesian elders, the leaders of the church in Ephesus, and he tells them, I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God or the whole counsel of God, meaning that Paul did not hesitate to speak the fullness of God's revealed word as it relates to his unfolding story of redemption. So in light of uh, truths that spring from, from these verses, I want you to know that my convictions do not allow me to simply arbitrarily skip over certain portions of God's word that perhaps are more difficult or uncomfortable And even unsettling for us. For if they did, we certainly would not be looking at this passage this morning. We probably would never be looking at it. For this is the record of one of the vilest stories in all of the Bible. So anyone that says that the Bible is boring has probably not really engaged the Bible. Has probably not really spent much time reading the Bible. This is not a story that you'll find in uh, your child's storybook Bible. This is not uh, a story that is in the Veggie Tales collection. And for that reason, I'm not going to read all of it this morning. I encourage you to spend time in God's Word to, to read this story. But I'm going to read selections of it and summarize other portions of it and then attempt to draw some biblical principles from it and application for our lives today. And with that being said, let me invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word from Genesis chapter 34. I want to remind you of the context that Jacob and Esau, two brothers who've been living in tension with one another, living uh, in hostility for two decades, have now finally been reconciled. Uh, Remember that Jacob encountered Esau and both of them had undergone a transformation of heart by the intervention of God and had a restoration. Esau embraces his brother Jacob. The two depart ways, and Jacob settles down uh, near the city of Shechem. And this is where we pick up in Genesis 34, verse 1. Now Dina, the daughter of Leah, had born to Jacob. The daughter Leah had born to Jacob went out to visit the women of the land. Verses 2 and 3 describe Shechem, the son of the ruler of this city, seeing Uh, Dina and desiring her and taking her and violating her and then expressing a desire to marry her in verse 4 and Shechem said to his father Hamor get me this girl as my wife 
When Jacob heard that his daughter Dinah had been defiled, his sons were in the fields with his livestock. So he did nothing about it until they came home. And Shechem's father, Hamor, went out to talk with Jacob. Meanwhile, Jacob's sons had come in from the fields as soon as they heard what had happened. They were shocked and furious because Shechem had done an outrageous thing in Israel by sleeping with Jacob's daughter, a thing that should not be done. Verse 8, but Hamor said to them, My son Shechem has his heart set on your daughter. Please give her to him as his wife. Intermarry with us. Give your daughters and take our daughters for yourselves. You can settle among us. The land is open to you. Live in it, trade in it, and acquire property in it. Then Shechem said to Dina's father and brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes and I will give you whatever you ask. Make the price for the bride and the gift I am to bring you as great as you like, and I'll pay whatever you ask me. Only give me the young woman as my, as my wife. Verse 13, because their sister Dina had been defiled, Jacob's sons replied deceitfully as they spoke to Shechem and his father Hamor. They said to them, we can't do such a thing. We can't give our sister to a man who is not circumcised. That would be a disgrace to us. These sons go on negotiating with Hamor and his son Shechem using this outward physical sign of the covenant as a barrier between their willingness to settle down with these people. And eventually, verse 18, their proposal seemed good to Hamor and his son Shechem. Essentially, they said, if you'll take on this sign, we will intermarry. We will settle down with you. Verse 19, the young man who was the most honored of all his father's family lost no time in doing what they said. Because he was delighted with Jacob's daughter. So Hamor and his son Shechem went to the gate of their city to speak to the men of their city. These men are friendly toward us, they said. Let them live in our land and trade in it. The land has plenty of room for them. We can marry their daughters and they can marry ours. And essentially Hamor and his son Shechem convinced the other men of the city that this is a worthwhile investment, that though it would uh, cost something to begin with, the benefit would outweigh the cost. And then in verse 25, the story continues, and we read about the deception that these sons used in making this agreement because they come in when the men of the city are unsuspecting it, and they destroy the city. They destroy all the men of the city. They take their sister uh, home with them. We pick up the story in verse 28. All the sons of Jacob seized their flocks and herds and donkeys and everything else of theirs in the city and out in the fields. They carried off all their wealth and all their women and children, taking as plunder everything in the houses. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me obnoxious to the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the people living in this land. We are few in number. And if they join forces against me and attack me, I and my household will be destroyed. And the sons respond essentially saying, well, they shouldn't have treated our sister this way. I invite you to bow in prayer with me. Father, we pray that you would guide us now by your spirit, that you would Grant us wisdom and understanding your word and this portion of your word and the greater context of, of your story that we might know how we as your people are called to live in light of it. And it's in Christ's name we pray and ask these things. Amen. Let me invite you to be seated. Whatever happened to happily ever after? I mean, this is one of the places that Hollywood gets it wrong because... Chapter 33 ends on this great note. 
this high note, two brothers who have been estranged, have been restored, they've been reconciled, things are good, and Jacob worships his God. And now this. Now Jacob lets his guard down. He and his family settle in this land among pagans, and the result is defilement, immorality, deception, and mass murder. We see in this text, this story, just how deep humans can sink into sin without God. Church, sin is a slippery, slippery slope. And left unchecked, all of us are prone to wander away from God, to drift away from God, and to to follow our own way, a sinful way that is dishonoring to God. See, Jacob was called to be the spiritual leader of his family. He was the head of his family. He was the recipient of God's promises, part of God's covenant people, one of our spiritual ancestors, one of the patriarchs, yet he failed to exercise spiritual leadership in this particular situation. And sin flourishes where spiritual leadership is Deficient. Essentially, in short, I think that's what's taking place through this particular story. Jacob is not living up to the calling that he has received by God. He lets his guard down once again. And we've been tracing throughout this series the highs and the lows of Jacob's life. And this story is one of the lows. Because he settled among the pagans, because he became comfortable in a culture that not only didn't worship his God, but worshiped false gods and engaged in all sorts of immoral practices, his children followed suit. We read in verse 1 of chapter 34, Now Dina, the daughter of Leah, had born to Jacob, went out to visit the women of the land. In essence, she went out letting her guard down, following the example of her father and associated with pagan women, and the result was disastrous. Church, spiritual complacency is an open door for sin. Spiritual complacency is an open door for for sin. To a certain extent, we expect sin and immorality and death from the world. But even the world is not without it's not with excuse, adequate excuse, because all of us as people created in the image of God have been given a conscience by God and have been shown certain attributes and characteristics and aspects of God through His creation. But those who have the revealed Word of God, who are the recipients of God's promises, who have entered into a right relationship with Him, are certainly without excuse. And I don't think it's coincidental that God is not mentioned in this entire story. God is not mentioned in this whole chapter of Genesis chapter 34 and end of chapter 33. Remember that Jacob is worshiping God. And then at the beginning of chapter 35, just on the heels of this story, God interrupts once again and speaks to Jacob and tells him to go on to Bethel where he had encountered God before. But here in chapter 34, no mention of God, perhaps implying that Jacob and his family had forgotten all about God. There are no spiritual heroes in this story. No one in this episode is painted in a positive light. The words of Dr. Ken Matthews, these are flesh and blood persons whose moral conduct fluctuates. In other words, they're just like you and me. 
and their failures and the depths of of their sinfulness ought to serve as a warning and a reminder to the rest of us to be watchful, to be alert, to be on guard against settling into our present culture too much that we fail to walk with God. We fail to live by faith in the God of of Scripture. We must be on guard against the comfortable, complacent, cultural Christianity that perhaps is really no Christianity at all. Church, we're called to reject spiritual complacency and to live Christ-centered lives for the glory of God. And in order for us to do that, we must, as a people, be people who are pursuing God. Let's pursue God. Let's run after God. Let's strive after God and knowing God and living for God and glorifying God in all that we say and all that we do. King David is in the desert of Judah. Pens words to a beautiful psalm. Psalm 63. He says, You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. He says, I have seen you, God, in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you, God, as long as I live. And in your name, I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods, with with singing lips, my mouth will praise you. See, friends, when you have tasted the goodness of the Lord, when you've encountered the presence of God, when you've recognized and realized the greatness of God's love and His mercy that's been extended to each of us in the gospel of Jesus Christ, then you know that nothing else satisfies like God satisfies. Knowing God is a a joy and a comfort and a satisfaction that nothing else in this world can feel. That's for this reason that the psalmist could say in Psalm 84, better is one day in your courts, God, than a thousand elsewhere. He says, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. Church, in a world that is characterized by sin and will be characterized by sin until the return of Christ. Let's be people of faith who pursue God in all that we say, all that we do, all that we think. For spiritual complacency is an open door for sin. And secondly, we learn from Genesis chapter 34 that lack of spiritual maturity often results in foolish, corrupt actions. Lack of spiritual maturity often results in foolish, corrupt actions. Actions. You see, when Jacob was not doing his duty as a spiritual leader in this particular family, there was a leadership vacuum. If you know anything about leadership, whenever there's a vacuum, someone else is going to fill that vacuum. And in this particular case, it, it was his sons. And just as Jacob was characterized by deceit and manipulation and trickery in order to get his own way, so were his sons here. Like father, like sons, except here his sons took things much farther than he ever did. Much worse than anything he ever sought to accomplish. And they used the sign of the covenant, the outward physical sign of the covenant, what was sacred for profane purposes. 
sign of the covenant that was meant to, to unify people of God in that day and to set them apart as distinct from the surrounding pagans and surrounding cultures and people who worshipped other false gods they used for their own advantage to carry out their own desire for revenge on those who had wronged their sister. But we know in the greater context of God's word that outward physical change is not really what matters for those who know the Lord. It's an inward change, an inward transformation, an inward desire to know and to follow after Him. And here, these two men, leaders of the city, Hamor and Shechem, offer Jacob and his descendants a, a shortcut to inheriting the promises of God. Essentially, he said, settle down with us. Intermarry with us and you can settle in this land, the land that was the promised land that eventually would be given to Jacob's descendants. Everybody, this would threaten the covenant. It would threaten their devotion to God because they would be settling among pagans who worshipped all sorts of false gods. You see, Israel was to be a light to the nations. Other nations watching them. Other nations invited to participate with them in the worship of God. But they were not to settle down and intermarry with unbelievers. Well, there's a vacuum of leadership and maturity. Corrupt, foolish actions often follow. I think we see modern day examples of this among people of faith. I think we see examples of this when supposed Christians react to persecution or immorality or, or danger or sin out of fear and hatred and a desire for revenge. Think of things like the bombing of abortion clinics or like the recent provoking words of a prominent Christian leader in our country following the attacks on San Bernardino. Church, we know according to the Word of God that, that we as people of faith and the God of Scripture are called to be salt, called to be light in this world, called to speak the truth of God in love. And the answer to the woes and the corruption and the immorality that we see all around us in our culture today is not the complete and utter dest destruction of all unbelievers. But it is for us as people of faith to proclaim the truth of God, to engage the culture with the truth, to, and to do so in a way that brings honor and glory to God. To do so in a way that mirrors the love of God. So we must beware of spiritual leaders, so to speak, who don't show any signs of spiritual maturity. Or any signs of growth in Christ, of walking with Christ. No spiritual fruit of walking with Christ. So before we surround ourselves simply with others who think just like us, who, who like things just like we like, and perhaps have the same persuasions that we have and the same sports affiliations that we have, we ought to first, as followers of Jesus Christ, surround ourselves with others who are following Jesus Christ. Not only should we as people of faith Pursue God, but we must join those who are pursuing God. It's join alongside others who are also running after God, seeking God, pursuing a, a right and close relationship with Him. The author of Hebrews said in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and following, Therefore, 
Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us as believers run with perseverance the race marked out for us. How? Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We're encouraged to consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you and I will not grow weary and lose heart. Church, let's be people who abide in Jesus Christ, who walk with Christ, who pursue God through Jesus Christ and people who reside with his people, people who reside with his church by fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. I had a mentor in college that would often give Christians and instructions, Christian students instructions or advice on perhaps who they should date, who they should pursue a relationship with as believers. And he said something uh, to this effect. He said, what you ought to be concerned with is running after Jesus. Run after Jesus. And when you do, look around and see who else is running after Jesus. And those are your options. Church, let's be people who pursue God and who join with others who are pursuing God so that we would not be spiritually complacent and so that we would not succumb to corrupt, foolish actions that are not honoring to God. And then the conclusion of this story and the conclusion of Genesis chapter 34, the depth of two sons is revealed. The depth of Simeon and Levi's deceit and sinfulness is revealed. No doubt they were angry and upset by what these men or what Shechem had done to their sister, and rightly so, but their response far outweighed the crime. And church, God desires that His people pursue righteousness rather than retaliation. God desires His people to pursue righteousness in this life rather than Retaliation. So I ask you this morning, how do you respond to sin? How do you react to sin? How do you deal with sin? Whether it's your own, whether it's someone close to you, whether it's perhaps someone that you don't even know. But how do you respond to sin? I think we see two examples in this particular story of how not to respond to sin as people of God. First, we see the example of Jacob. I think to a certain extent, Jacob is a, an extreme liberal in this story who really uh, shies away from the responsibility of the guilty. He doesn't want to hold the, the guilty accountable for their sin because it's just too messy. In fact, he's more concerned with his own reputation. We see that in verse 30 than, than with dealing with the sin. But then on the other hand, we see the response of his sons. We see the response of Simeon and, and Levi, who perhaps are the extreme conservatives in this story, who simply want to obliterate the sinner. One approach kills the sinner, and the other approach takes the sin too lightly. In the words of one theologian, there is a third way. There's another approach, perhaps the best approach, and that is God's approach. That is the way of substitutionary sacrifice. For the wages of sin is death, the Bible states. 
Romans chapter 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death. The earnings of sin is death. The deserved payment for sin is death before God. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, God takes sin seriously. He doesn't ignore it. He doesn't overlook it. Sin is a serious offense. Every sin is a serious offense before a holy, eternal, perfect, just God. Every sin must be dealt with. Every sin must be paid for. But the good news for us who know the rest of this story is that every sin was paid for at the cross of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus took the sin. He took the payment. And because He did, no one is beyond the reach of God's redemption. So as believers in the God of the Bible, the one and only almighty God, let's practice a gospel approach to sin. When we deal with sin, when we're forced to respond to sin as we are every day in our own lives and the lives of others, let's practice a gospel approach to sin that takes sin seriously. It doesn't shy away from the guilt of the sinner before a holy and just God. Let's practice a gospel approach to sin that engages the culture with the truth, God's truth, but does so with a love that mirrors the love of God and points people to the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, God is a redeeming God, and He is a God who is always faithful to His promises despite human sin. And I think that's a takeaway from Genesis chapter 34, that despite the sin of Jacob and his children, God's grace led him to remain faithful to his promises, carrying out his work of redemption through them and their children for their good, for our good, and ultimately for God's glory. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity once again to open your word, for you have the words of life. Father, we thank you for the truth of Scripture. We thank you for the depth of your word. And Father, we thank you for the privilege and opportunity and responsibility of walking with you as your people. Father, we thank you for redeeming us despite our sin. Thank you, Lord, that at just the right time, your one and only Son, Jesus Christ, died in our stead, in our place, that we might be restored to right relationship with you. And Father, would you grant us grace? Would you grant us mercy? Would you grant us wisdom as we seek to to be your salt, to be your light, shining in this dark world for your glory? Lead us, Lord, to engage the culture with your truth and to do so with a love that honors you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray and ask these things. Amen.